Good morning. Welcome to Walking with Jesus Through the Word, one chapter per day. I am Pastor Jason Van Bemmel from Forest Hill Presbyterian Church. It is day 710 of our three-year journey through the Word of God, and we're back in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 22, a very intense and powerful chapter. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his Word together. Heavenly Father, your Word is wonderful. Your Son is wonderful, and we need you to teach us. We need you to prepare our hearts to receive. We need you to help our minds understand. We need you to prepare our souls to respond in faith and obedience to your word as we see more of Jesus very clearly today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. The next day, then, sorry, then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover and when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? 
Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father has assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands with me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. 
But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy! Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. That is Luke 22. What a powerful chapter. What a pivotal chapter. You know, every moment in this chapter is so important, so poignant, so powerful. This is our salvation. This is our Savior. And, and he's approaching the hour that he's come into the world for. It is no coincidence that it is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, because he is the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb had to be brought into the house and examined before it was then killed. And Jesus has been in Jerusalem for days. He's been examined and questioned. Now he's going to be examined even more closely by the Sanhedrin, who won't be able to find any fault with him. They couldn't find any fault with him, other than the fact that he claimed to be the Son of God, which he was and he is. So the only fault they had with him was that he told the truth, and they didn't like it. And that's why they wanted to put him to death. That's the no further evidence is needed, is simply the fact that he told the truth. So, the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death. They feared the people. They didn't want to do it out in the daytime. Jesus confronted them on that in the garden. I was with you in the temple day after day, teaching out in the open. But this is your hour, darkness, because they fear the people. Man-fearers, people-fearers, people-pleasers, people-appeasers will never live a faithful life before the Lord because God requires us to have courage and to trust him and to be willing to stand out in the open daylight against what is popular in our culture and what the people want. We know what Judas wanted. He wanted money. 
And so Judas betrayed Jesus for money. And he looked for an opportunity to find, lead them to Jesus away from the crowd. See, it wasn't hard to find Jesus, but it was hard to find Jesus when he wasn't out in public. They didn't know where he went when he wasn't in public. And so Judas was the guy to tell them how they could get their hands on him privately away from the crowd. <clears throat> right before he's betrayed, our Lord, knowing that it's Passover and knowing that he is the Passover lamb, he asks his disciples to go and to prepare for the Passover meal so that that would be the last supper that he has with them as the Passover meal. Jesus is also going to use this very special Passover to present to them the Lord's Supper, which we continue to observe to this day, 2,000 years later. So Jesus tells them to go and prepare, and they need to know where, and they need to know how, and Jesus has it all arranged. We don't know how, but Jesus has it all arranged. He says, you're going to enter the city. You're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. You're going to follow him into the house that he enters. And you're going to tell the master of that house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I'm going to eat the Passover with my disciples? And he's going to show you a large upper room furnished, prepared there. Now, we don't we don't know. Did Jesus go in ahead of time and meet with this guy and negotiate? Maybe. Or maybe it was just he knew the Holy Spirit had put it on this guy's heart that He's going to provide the upper room. But God provides. And Jesus goes into the upper room. And when the hour came, I love those wonderfully poignant expressions that we get in Luke. When the hour came, it's the, it's the key and vital hour. He's reclining at table. The apostles are with him. And he says, I earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is getting it in in the nick of time because he's about to be arrested by, you know, Judas leading. And they could have arrested him before, but they didn't. It's only in the time that Jesus has because he's going to fulfill everything. And that includes this Passover meal. And at this Passover meal, he takes the bread, verse 19. He gives thanks. He breaks it and he gives it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Now, it's obvious that Jesus doesn't mean his literal physical body. None of the apostles or disciples would have understood it that way. He's sitting there at the table. He's not breaking off pieces of his flesh to give them. He's breaking bread. And he's saying, this is my body. In other words, this represents my body. This is metaphorically my body. When you eat this, you are remembering. Do this in remembrance of me. You're remembering the sacrifice that I made for you, and you are sharing in my body in a powerful spiritual way. Likewise, the cup, when he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It wasn't literally physically a cup full of blood, right? That Such a thought is really disgusting and contrary to scripture. And it would have been the furthest thing from the disciples' minds as they're reclining around the table with him. They understood what he meant, that it was symbolic, that it was representative, and yet still powerful and still deeply meaningful. It's not a mere memorial, but it's not the actual physical body and blood of Christ, because that is not at all in keeping with the context of this 
implementation of the Lord's Supper. Jesus says that one of them, one of them to whom he serves the Lord's Supper, is going to betray him. It means at the table, around the table, in this, this gathering of this church for this family meal, this Lord's Supper, Jesus knows, Jesus has purposed that there would be an unbeliever at the table. Not that we're told to give the Lord's Supper to unbelievers knowingly, but Jesus is not ever under the illusion that his church is going to only be made up of people who are truly regenerate and saved, because from the very beginning, his hand-picked 12 had one who was not regenerate and saved, and who never would be. The church on earth has always been a mixed gathering of many true believers, sure, many actually regenerate people, but also many people who share in the Lord's Supper and who eat and drink condemnation to themselves because they're hypocrites and they really love money more than Jesus or they love position or power or prestige or whatever they're there for, they're not there for Jesus. And that's the same thing with Judas. He, he liked being able to keep the money bag and being able to help himself from what was in the money bag. And that's why he was willing to pray to betray Jesus for money. So this is a warning. It's a warning on a couple of different levels. One warning is don't think that just because you go to church and you participate in all the outward signs and sacraments and 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 exercises and and singing and listening that that makes you a Christian. It's the heart that desires Jesus. It's the heart that trusts in Jesus. That's what we're looking for. That's what God's looking for. But also, it's a warning for us to keep in mind that the church is always, the church on earth is always a mixed group. And so we shouldn't assume, presume, judge. We should function with a realism that says, we know that there are people. So when, one of the things, like when I preach on Sunday mornings at Forest Hill, I'm always looking to preach the gospel and to call people to faith in Christ for two reasons. One is, those who know Jesus and love Jesus need the gospel and need to trust in Jesus every day of our lives. But also, I know that there are always people there who don't know the Lord. Even if there are no visitors, and even if it's only church members, I know there are still people there who are not really believers and who need to know the Lord. I don't know who they are because no one knows their heart except for God. But Jesus knew the heart of Judas, still had him in his church, still served in the Lord's Supper. It's a powerful thought. There's a dispute about who's the greatest. <clears throat> this is one of the favorite topics of conversation, apparently, especially among the inner circle. And these are true believers, Peter, James, and John, the people closest to Jesus, the people who were chosen by him and given the closest access to Jesus, the one who made the first profession of faith, the ones who were on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're the ones. Now, there may be other people, but we know from other stories in the Gospels, that was one of the things those three guys talked about a lot. Well, which of us three is the most special and the most greatest, right? Which is why the whole idea of a papacy, let's just say this, the whole idea of one of them being the Pope and being actually the head is so foreign to the New Testament and to the Gospels. They're arguing over which one is the greatest. Jesus doesn't say, oh, it's Peter. You know, Peter's the Pope. Peter's the head of the church on earth as soon as I leave. No, he doesn't say that because it's not true. It's nowhere in scripture. That's a made-up invention of the Bishop of Rome hundreds and hundreds of years later. Instead, what he warns them against is of trying to 
crave and seek positions of power and authority. And he says, you need to be one who serves. You need to be one who is humble. You need to be one who is like the youngest. Now, Jesus does tell them that because they've been with him through these trials, they are given this kingdom, the kingdom of God, and they may eat and drink at the table in the kingdom, and that they're going to sit on thrones judging earthly Israel for its apostasy against the Lord. That's a profound thing. This is something that all believers will share in. All believers who belong to Jesus Christ, we all share in his trials in his suffering in some way. God has a measure of suffering, a measure of trials that are the trials of the body of Christ that we get to share in. And God gives us a kingdom and God gives us the promise that we will sit with Jesus and judge the nations. And that's a profound, humbling thought. Immediately after that, so interesting, immediately after, fathers assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Immediately after that, he turns to Simon Peter, the first professing Christian. One of these who's jockeying for position of first. And he turns to him and says, right after telling him he's going to sit on the throne, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, he turns to him and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter, in all of his self-confidence and boasting, says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus looks at him straight and says, I intend to tell you the truth, Peter. Here's what's going to happen. The rooster's not even going to crow this day until you've denied me three times. Is there great grace given to us in the kingdom of God? Absolutely. Does it come from our own abilities? Absolutely not. Is Peter going to sit on a throne with Jesus and judge? Yes. Is it because Peter is so great and so godly in himself? No. And that is absolutely seen later in this chapter when Peter in cowardice denies, denies, denies. Everything written about Jesus has to be fulfilled, including this prophecy that he quotes in verse 37, he was numbered with the transgressors. He poured out his life for us in fulfillment of the word of God, to accomplish our salvation in every last detail. Read Psalm 22, read Isaiah 53. You'll see every detail of his crucifixion, of his death, of his burial, of his resurrection was foretold, and he enacted it perfectly. And then they go, they move out of the upper room, into the Mount of Olives. It was their custom. That explains why Judas was able to find them there, even though he wasn't with them when they went. See, Judas didn't walk with them from the upper room to the Mount of Olives, but Judas knew where he was going to be because it was their custom. He warns the disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he goes out and he prays that he would have the courage to do what God has called him to do. He doesn't want to do it, He's going to be made sin for us. He's going to be made the object of God's wrath. He's going to lose 
fellowship with his father and come under the wrath of his father, he does not want to do that. He's not afraid of the Romans and nails and spears and whips. He's not afraid of the jeering of the crowd. He is trembling at the thought that the wrath of God, his father, would be poured out on him because he would become sin for us. And so he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Other gospels say, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. But the father was not willing and it was not possible because Jesus had to go to the cross. It was the only way to secure our salvation. This is so important for us to get. There's no other way to be reconciled to God the Father but through the death of Jesus Christ. If there was any other way, if you could go on pilgrimage, if you could give alms, if you could show you that you're a good person, if you could memorize scripture, if you could, if you could do anything that would reconcile you to God the Father atoning for your sins and bringing you righteousness, if there was any other way of salvation, Jesus would not have been sent to the cross to bear the wrath of God. God would have answered his prayer and said, oh, I'm willing. There's other ways for this to happen. There's other, there's other ways of salvation. You don't have to do this. But there was no other way. There is no other way. Jesus is the only way. His death is the only forgiveness of sins. His death is the only atonement that cleanses us. So an angel strengthens him that he might be able to go through with it, that he might be able to do what he'd been sent to do. And it was such an agonizing experience that his sweat becomes like great drops of blood. And God the Father is not hard-hearted. He would have gladly freed his son from this if there was any other way to save us. But it's the way. The way of salvation is in Jesus through the cross only. And then comes the betrayal. This man, Judas, who had been so close to Jesus for years, who had kept the money bag, who had listened to him teach, who had seen him do miracle after miracle, who knew he had to have known better than anyone who Jesus was. There wasn't a lack of evidence. It was a greedy heart that caused Judas to betray Jesus with a kiss. And then all of what Jesus said earlier about how they need to have swords. They think this is the time to use them, to go swinging, which is so often the case, right? The disciples misunderstand what Jesus is talking about. He is not saying that the kingdom of God comes by swinging swords. That's not how the kingdom of God comes. Over and over again throughout church history, Christians have made this mistake of thinking that somehow we, by the power of our swords, can bring about the kingdom of God. That's not how it happens. He says, enough of that. He heals the ear of the servant of the high priest. He rebukes his disciples. He tells them, put away the sword. He's willing to go because the kingdom of God comes by suffering, not by sword swinging. The kingdom of God comes by taking the cup that the Father gives, not by running away from suffering through the power of the sword. And then we see this scene in the courtyard of the high priest. Peter, following at a distance. Peter, staying in the shadows. Peter, backing off from Jesus. I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. 
but not if it means putting away my sword. That's where, that's how I read Peter in this chapter. Peter's saying, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death, and I think he means it. But only if he can go down swinging. Nope, none of that machismo. You're not going to go down swinging. And so he steps to the side and he says, I don't know this man. I don't know this man. I told him I would follow him to prison and to death, but he wouldn't let me swing my sword to defend him. He told me to put it away. He healed the man I struck. I don't know this man. And then Jesus looks at him. Verse 61 is one of the most powerful lines in all of Scripture. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And he went out and wept bitterly. If Peter couldn't do it his way, he didn't want to do it. And so Jesus looked at him, and all of a sudden Peter saw his own heart and what it would take for his salvation. Jesus was going to the cross because that's what it would take to save Peter from that kind of cowardly, pseudo-courageous heart of sin and selfishness that he needed to be freed from. And then Jesus is mocked by the soldiers and beaten and blasphemed against. And then finally, the last thing we see in this chapter is this is this trial, so-called trial before the council. The only thing they're able to prove is that Jesus says he's the son of God. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Uh, other gospel accounts will include this testimony that he said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, which in John 2 is recorded. John gives us the context of that quote. Jesus was telling them, about his own body, if you tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. So th there was nothing against Jesus. They they wanted anybody to be able to testify anything, but there was no dirt on him. He was clean. He was innocent. He was righteous. And this is the final examination of the Passover lamb, spotless. The only thing we can say about him is he's claiming to be the son of God. Exactly what he is. I pray that we would trust in Jesus. I know I say that a lot on these devotionals, but look really in our lives day to day, as we're living moment by moment, hour by hour, there's so many things that we can turn to and trust in. Judas trusted in money. Peter trusted in his sword or in his own courage and resolve. The council trusted in their ability to make a trial outcome come the way that it wanted to. Are we trusting in Jesus to be our Savior and our Shepherd, to be our righteousness and our sufficiency day by day, hour by hour? And are we willing to take whatever suffering is assigned to us as part of being in his kingdom? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you that we have in him perfect righteousness, peace with you, eternal life, and that he paid the ultimate price to give all of this to us. Help us to trust in Jesus, not to trust in our sword or in our money or in our political connections 
or our constitutional rights or whatever. Help us to trust in Jesus and follow him as he invites us. Take up your cross and follow me. He drank the cup that was given to him. Let us accept the lot you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, ah, 710 days. I hope they've been a blessing to you, and I hope you have a blessed day in the Lord.